Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. We're going to be actually closing out uh, the series that we've been in for the last several weeks now. It's been a series through Luke chapter 12. And this series, the whole goal of it has been to really look at what it means to have an eternal perspective on life. And what we've been looking at as we've gone through Luke 12, we've been going kind of chunk by chunk or section by section through, and we've been seeing what Jesus has to say. And as we look at these words, we've been seeing, okay, how does this compare to what it means to have a worldly perspective or a temporary perspective? Because in life, we don't want to, as followers of Jesus, to have a temporary perspective. We don't want to live in such a way that the things that we do and the effort that we put into life is wasteful and just temporary. We want to have an eternal perspective on life where what we do actually matters. The things that we live for are things that have eternal purpose and have eternal weight. So we've been going over this for the last several weeks now, breaking it down piece by piece. And today we're going to be in Luke 12, verses 49 through 59. So you can start turning there now. Luke 12, 49 through 59. This is the last three sections of Luke 12. And uh, just so you're, you know, um, if you use the Version Bible app, you can click events and Awaken Church will pop up there. And all of the notes, all of the uh, text that we're going to read today, all the points, it'll all be in there and it'll be very easy to follow through. We'll also have them up on the screen so you can follow there as well. But just for those of you who who will use that, I want to make sure you know. Um, But our goal today as we go through these verses is going to be really to tie all of this stuff that we've been looking at together. Because up to this point, we've been kind of going section by section, and we've been drawing out, okay, how does this thing apply to my life? How does this thing apply to my life? And that's good. That's a good thing. As we've learned, there's a lot of good things to apply. But there's actually more going on here than might meet the eye that I think is important for us to understand. So our goal today is going to be to tie everything that we've studied over these last several weeks together. And the way I'm going to do that is by kind of helping us understand what the point of Luke 12 is. Because Luke 12, as we've been studying it, might seem like it's just a random uh, grouping of of a bunch of different teachings of Jesus. And that might be how you've seen it. As we've gone through, it's felt like that. It's been very much just a collection of stuff that Jesus said, and we're learning all these various lessons out of it. But it's actually a lot more than that, because Luke 12 is a section or a chapter within the greater book of the gospel of Luke. So that seems simple, like, yeah, obviously it's Luke 12. So yeah, it makes sense. But the reason that's important to know is because a gospel means something. So gospel means message or good news. So what we're looking at in Luke 12 falls within the greater message of Luke, which is talking about the person of Jesus. That's the whole point of the entire book. It's really a biography. It's how, what we would say, a biography on Jesus, who Jesus is. So why that's important is because when we look at something like a biography or something that's historical, we think about it in a chronological way. That's how we read history. This event happened, this event happened, this person was born, they lived, they died, this this thing happened. It's very in order of time. 
the way that people wrote in ancient times, this is second temple period is what it's called, the way that they wrote biography or history was not chronological. That seems weird, but they wrote differently. They wrote history oftentimes in a topical way. So what that means is that for Luke, as he's giving us the message of Jesus, that's his point, the gospel, the good news, according to Luke, it's talking about Jesus, he's going to be writing it in a topical way about a specific thing he's trying to drive home about Jesus. It's not always going to be in perfect order. So why that's important is because as we've been going through Luke 12, studying it, it has application in very, you know, kind of seemingly random ways, but it's also all going together. It's all got one kind of idea, one overarching thing it's driving toward that he's trying to get us to understand in a topical sense throughout Luke 12. So that's what we're going to be trying to put all together today. So what I'm going to do is I want to read, we're not going to read all the verses, but I want us to see the common theme across all of Luke 12. And this has been going on the whole entire time. We just may have missed it. So what we're going to do is I'm going to just give us in one sentence a quick summary of what each section has been so far. So these are going to be up on the screen so you can follow along. But what I want you guys to be looking for as I read these off is what do you see as like the common theme across all of these? Okay. So in Luke 12 verses 1 through 3, the theme is our motives and character will one day be exposed. All is judged by God. And we've studied all of these just for reference. We've looked at all these over these last several weeks. Uh, chapter 12, verses 4 through 7 says, Our fear and respect of God should far outweigh our fear of man. And God is good. Chapter 12, verses 8 through 12. God expects his people to express loyalty to him in words and actions in this life. Okay, next one. This is chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. We need to have our eyes on the treasures of God's kingdom, not our kingdom. Next one. This is chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. We need to trust God with the worries of life and not be distracted by them. Okay, next one. This is the one we talked about last week. This is verses 35 through 48. Faithful servants of God are blessed and the unfaithful suffer loss. Okay, so that's a one word or one sentence summary rather of all of these sections. And you'll notice if you really think through, I know it's hard because we went so fast through them, there is a common theme that's tying all of these things together. And there's no one perfect sentence that encapsulates it. It's an overall idea. And this is actually going to be the title of today's message. It's Jesus is the focus of an eternal perspective. If you look at all of those things that we just read, that's really at the heart of all of them. Jesus is the focus of an eternal perspective. And that can seem really simple. It can seem like, okay, yeah, seems obvious. But you need to understand this has really significant implications on how you live life. Because we're not just talking about this as like a phrase that you put out there in the world and agree with. This is something that will affect every single moment, 
every single day, every single action that you do in your life. Having an eternal perspective and and understanding that Jesus is at the center of that will affect everything that you do on a very small level. So we got to understand this is a big deal, what Jesus is getting at. All of these things tie to, they're going to affect us. So if you went through all of those and you were trying to keep your mind, okay, Jesus is the focus of an eternal perspective. How does that affect me? And you're looking at all of those things that we've read through these last several weeks. It would be that Jesus should be our motive. God's going to judge the motives of everybody. Jesus better be the motive behind what you do and all your actions. Another one would be that we need to have loyalty to God, to Jesus, in the face of persecution. Jesus expects us to acknowledge him in the face of hardship and challenge and actually live that out in our words and our actions, despite what it might cost us. Jesus expects us to actually live lives where his kingdom is the priority and not our comfort. That's going to involve your money. That's going to involve the way you spend your time. It's going to involve where you go on a daily basis because it's not about you anymore. It's going to affect us in the way that we perceive life because we're going to understand that Jesus has to be our provider and we can't be distracted by all the worries that are going on around us. That if that actually is true, that's going to affect the way that you live. We have to understand that if we're going to be servants of Jesus, we're going to claim that it's going to require activity on our part. That's what it means to be faithful. Like we talked about last week, this stuff affects us on a regular basis. Jesus and his commands should be at the heart of every single thing that we do. That's what it means that Jesus is the focus of an eternal perspective. He takes priority in every area, in every aspect of your life. And I'm, I'm really stressing that. I know it can seem like I'm just looping and saying the same thing over and over again. It's because it's so important that, that this sink in. And sometimes you got to hear something a thousand times before you actually hear it for the first time, like really understand it. So that's super important to note because Luke, in what we're going to read today as we close out these last couple of verses... It's going to be three sections we're going to see. Luke is going to really hammer home this theme extra clearly because he's trying to drive this idea home to his audience. So let's go ahead and start reading this, and hopefully you're going to be able to see what I mean. Verses 49 through 53 is what we're going to start with. It says, I came to cast fire on the earth in wood that that it were already kindled, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Okay, so here's our our one-sentence kind of summary of what this means, what this is pointing at, and this is also going to be our first point today. Point number one, following Jesus may divide even our closest relationships. Following Jesus may divide even our closest relationships. So where we began reading right there, Jesus says 
that he came to cast down fire on the earth. And then right after that, he says that he didn't come for peace, but division. Now, if you're like me, when you first hear that, you think, that doesn't really sound like the Jesus that I know. I mean, what happened to the Prince of Peace? This doesn't sound peaceful. What happened to peace on earth, goodwill to men? When the angels spoke of Jesus' birth, what's up with that? It doesn't feel like this aligns. It's because Jesus is trying to convey something very important about his character and who he is. And we need to be able to see that. Jesus says some interesting stuff. When he says that he came to cast down fire, he's trying to give an illustration of something or a picture of something. And this is because fire in this time really represented the idea of judgment. And that's because it ties back to the Old Testament. So an example of fire and judgment in the Old Testament, obvious one a lot of us know, is Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire rains down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah because it's judgment from God on them. And that's a common theme. It's not just singled out with Sodom and Gomorrah. Frequently throughout the Old Testament, you see fire as a symbol of judgment. So what Jesus is getting at by using this term of, I came to cast fire on earth, he's saying, I came for the sake of judgment. That's why I am here. Now, right in that moment, as Jesus is saying this, he's not literally meaning it as he's about to throw fire down. One day, he literally will. When Jesus returns, there will be judgment in the form of fire being cast down. But right now, he's trying to convey a picture for people to understand. Jesus coming brings impending judgment on humanity. And the reason that is, is because humans, because of Jesus' coming, now have a responsibility to either accept or reject Jesus as Savior. And by nature, that brings judgment. If you accept Jesus, you are spared from judgment. If you reject Jesus, judgment is coming. So Jesus is saying, I came so that judgment would come. That's what he's trying to get across. Jesus is still the Prince of Peace for those who believe. There is peace on earth and goodwill to men for those who believe. But for those who reject, there's judgment. There's fire. It's not a positive thing. So for those who are excited and and thankful and understand what Jesus came for, who have accepted that, This is a very positive thing that, yes, we understand that Jesus came for judgment, but we understand that we have life because of the peace that that he brings. And Jesus, as he goes on, he's trying to draw home this point of that there's a choice here because he says that he came to bring division. When Jesus says that, Jesus is trying to convey like, hey, if you're going to follow me, this is not a passive thing that you just do in your mind. This is something that affects the way that you live. And by nature, because Jesus' ways are so different from the world's ways, it's going to divide you. It is going to make you no longer be able to live or walk the same way as those who have rejected God. So Jesus is trying to really drive this home. And that's what he means by giving this example of families being divided. How it'll be son against father, father against son, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law, against daughter-in-law. He's trying to give a picture using the family unit. And that's because at this period of time, the family unit was the closest, tightest relationship that existed 
for a person. Someone's family was like, that is as good as it gets, relationally speaking. These are the people you trust the most, who have your back the most. And what Jesus is trying to say is that following him will cause division even in that tightest of spheres. This is not something that is just outside of what's going on in your life. It's not something that's just up here in your head. This is something that's affecting you to the deepest layers of your life. And I think it's important to note that it's not Jesus's desire that we be divided. It's not his desire that we have issues within our own families. That's not what he wants. But it's important that Jesus notes this because he wants us to understand this is a consequence. It's going to probably happen. You will probably lose friends. You will likely wind up being on the outside of your own family. And many of us have experienced that, where following Jesus has cost us relationships with our families. And Jesus is trying to emphasize this. He wants people to understand that this is just a consequence of choosing. If you choose Jesus, your life will look different. If you reject Jesus, your life is going to look a certain way. And those things do not mesh. And you need to be ready for the consequences of that. Jesus' point is that following him authentically will likely cause these divisions. People, including our own families, friends and our own families, may not see you as you're giving up your life for Jesus as a positive thing. People might not see that as something that they agree with. Friends who are interested in pursuing relationships and sexual things and drugs and drinking and living for this life, accumulating wealth and comfort for now, family members who are pursuing that, the discussions that happen around families that are degrading and putting people down, people may not see you as you begin to pursue Jesus and you start to change and set those things aside. They might not like that. They may not want to be around you anymore because they want to continue on their path. You have to accept that that is a very real consequence of following Jesus. Now, what's important is that the reason we still do that, the reason we're willing to accept that consequence of division all the way to the point of our own families is because we understand that eternal weight of following him. That we're not just doing this for a random fun moment now. The reason we're doing this is because of the eternal weight that Jesus holds. We're looking forward to, hey, there is life infinitely ahead of us and there is judgment coming and I understand what it requires to be saved and I'm willing to count that cost now even though it's painful sometimes and even though it's hard I'm willing to count that cost because this is much more important than this temporary thing that will eventually burn up that's what Jesus is getting at in this section let's go to that next one this is going to be verses 54 through 56 Jesus says, And he also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see uh, the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret this present time? 
Okay. Second point, this, again, this overarching theme of sentence that's defining all of Luke 12. This is, this is what it's going to be. The spiritual climate clearly points to it being a time for action. The spiritual climate clearly points to it being a time for action. So in this portion, Jesus is really trying to get people to open their eyes. That's what he's trying to do. He wants people to see things spiritually the same way that they're able to perceive things physically. He's trying to get them to be warned about this. So Jesus says some interesting stuff here. He calls these people hypocrites because they can interpret the patterns of the weather. And I thought that was really interesting because I was like, how are you a hypocrite for understanding the weather? And Jesus is trying to draw a parallel here. The idea of being a hypocrite is that you're conveying something that's not actually true about yourself. So what he's trying to get them to see is the reason they're hypocrites is because they can see the changing of the climate, but they're hypocritical because they can't see that fully. And he's talking about the spiritual climate. He wants them to understand there's two things going on here and you're totally missing the one. That's making you hypocritical. So there's some stuff going on culturally that's kind of important. So when Jesus goes on to start talking about the weather, he specifically says, when you see a cloud rising up in the west. When Jesus says that, the west in his geographic location would have been the Mediterranean Sea. If a cloud was rising from the west, it was rising over the Mediterranean Sea and it was going to blow in and that was an obvious sign of rain. It's where the water is, it's where it's blowing from, that's where the water is going to fall now. So the reason this is important is because people would then, if they saw a cloud rising in the west, they'd say, hey, that's probably going to be rain. I need to be prepared for that rain. I'm going to go out. I'm going to make sure my field is plowed rightly. I'm going to make sure the seeds are in the ground. I'm going to make sure that I have my stuff out to collect water. If I'm going to use that for drinking, I'm going to make sure the animals are in a a safe place. I'm going to get ready. And another important thing about rain is that it was seen as a blessing. This is a very agricultural society. So for them, rain meant blessing. So that was a good thing. But then on the other side, Jesus says, and when you see a south wind blowing, you expect there to be scorching heat. This was an obvious thing as well, because to the south of where Jesus is was both the Sahara Desert and the Arabian Desert. So if wind is blowing from that direction, deserts are hot, it's going to get hot. It's not going to be pleasant. And again, just like the rain, it meant I need to prepare. I need to make sure I got water ready. I need to make sure my shelter is good to go. I need to make sure that I'm prepared in case that this leads to a famine. Just like rain was a blessing, heat and high heat was seen as kind of a cursing. It wasn't seen as good. So Jesus is showing with the signs of the weather a parallel between good and bad. And then he says to them, why can you not interpret this time, this present time? It's because he's drawing a parallel to the spiritual climate. What he's trying to get them to see is that this moment that they are living in, in the same way that they can see the signs physically of rain coming or heat coming, blessing and cursing, they should also be able to interpret the signs of the spiritual things that are occurring, positive and negative. He's saying these things are readily apparent. Jesus at this time is doing miracles. He's walking around healing people. 
Jesus is teaching the Scripture in a life-giving way, unlike a lot of the people of his time. He's speaking with authority that people ought to follow and that they're going to see fruit because of their obedience. Jesus is saying, hey, if you look at what I am doing right now, and this still goes for us, God is still doing wonders on the earth. He still does do miracles. The truth of Scripture still holds true now. The Scripture says what obedience looks like and what it produces, that it produces love, that it produces joy, that it produces patience, patience, that it produces peace. It produces all of these things. And we can look at life and see, yeah, if I behave that way and I walk in the community of people who are being obedient, that's true. I see this is a tangible fruit that's happening from the word. But on the flip side, Jesus is also saying, you can see the destruction of sin. It's plain as day. Look around you. You don't need somebody to tell you something special to see how damaging sin is. You experience it in your own life personally, in the brokenness of relationships, in your own sin as you pursue things that ultimately harm you and leave you empty. Saying you see it outside of you, in the destruction of your culture, in the horrible, evil, violent things that people do to one another. It's written all around you. Jesus is saying, read the spiritual climate the same way that you read the physical climate. It's right in front of your eyes. And then act accordingly. Live according to that. It should be apparent to you. We need to recognize the signs of the season, and we need to take action. We need to step out. I think one of the ways that we step out is in obedience to Christ, but another way that we step out is by pursuing Jesus through sharing the gospel to others. If we're seeing the hot winds blowing in of judgment, how are we not going to go share the gospel with the people who don't know? We can't just sit here silently and walk in week to week and not care about the people we work with, not care about our family members. If we see the signs plain as day of what's coming, we need to step up and get to work. Be prepared. That's what Jesus is getting at in this section. Now, as we go to this last section, get ready to close things out here. This is going to be verses 57 through 59. It says, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Third point, an overarching kind of idea or theme of what this section is saying is that we need to settle our debt of sin now before it's too late. This is pretty clear, and it makes sense why Jesus would say this on the heels of what he just said, or what Luke shared with us uh, about the weather. We need to settle our debt of sin now before it is too late. So here in these final verses, Jesus gives a really eye-opening powerful warning that I really want us to see. Um, He starts off by saying, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? The word right, right there, it's not just like a general word for eh, right and wrong. It's a 
pretty important word. It means righteousness or just. So this is like bigger scale than just like, oh, you did something good or you did something bad. This is like really high end, like, hey, judge what is righteous versus what is sinful. So when Jesus is saying this, he's trying to get people to see something. He's saying, acknowledge what is righteous before God. Stop living in ignorance about it. Stop leaving it in the background. You need to acknowledge what righteousness is. It's important that you do that. You can't live in this gray space anymore. Acknowledge what is right, what is just. And then he goes on and he says some other stuff. He says that these people, us, need to settle with our accuser on the way to the magistrate. And this is pretty interesting. That word accuser can also mean opponent. That's going to be important. The idea is that he's talking about arriving at a settlement between you and somebody who's opposing you, specifically here in a financial sense. It's the idea of you owing debt, um, settling with them on the way to the judge. Before the judge throws you in prison, settle with your opponent on the way while you have the opportunity. Jesus is alluding to the ancient practice of debt imprisonment, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's being thrown in jail because you owe a debt that you have not paid or you're unwilling to pay. And this was a common thing back at this time. If somebody said, hey, I will pay you this or I'll do this work for you and, and, and that'll be my payment for something that you did for me, and then you failed to do it, somebody could say, hey, okay, you are not holding up your end of the bargain you owe me a debt, and I'm going to take you to a judge until you give me what is owed. And if you refuse to say, okay, well, let's figure this out. How can, I'm, how can I work this out with you? If you fail to do that, the judge would say, yep, you do, in fact, owe this person. There's witnesses that say that you did indeed make this agreement, and you owe this person whatever amount, and until you pay that, you are going to be in prison. So you can either pay now and be done, or be thrown in jail in hope that a family member or a close friend will pay to get you out. Until your debt's paid, you're in there. So the implication here is if you don't have anybody outside who can pay for your debt, then you're in there forever. You are hopeless. You will die in prison. Now, What's so cool to me about this, what's so crazy about this, is Jesus, what he says in this is, settle on the way with your opponent. And in Jesus' illustration, the person being accused is in fact in the wrong. They will eventually be thrown in jail. And this is such a beautiful picture of the gospel, if you don't already see it. It's so cool. I love this because, because of what it paints for us. We are the ones who need to right now acknowledge what is right. Acknowledge righteousness. Stop ignoring it. Acknowledge what is true. Acknowledge that you have indeed fallen short. You've been in sin, not in righteousness. Acknowledge that. And then settle with your accuser. You know who the accuser is? It's Jesus. He is the opponent Why is he the opponent? It's because he is the one who 
we owe our debt to, our debt of sin. We have not been obedient to honor him. We've dishonored him in sin. And everything outside of obedience is debt to Christ. We are supposed to be living in obedience to God and in relationship with him. So when we're not, we're living in sin, and that sin is a debt. We're not giving God what he is owed in worship and glory and honor. So we owe this debt. And Jesus is there at our side as we're walking to judgment, which is either going to be death or Jesus' Jesus's return. Either one. And either of those things could happen in the next five minutes. It's not guaranteed that we have any amount of time between now and that judgment moment. So we need to settle now while we have the opportunity. And Jesus is there, not just pointing out our sin and saying, acknowledge that you're sinful. Acknowledge what's righteousness. Jesus is saying, acknowledge that and then settle with me. I'm willing to settle with you right now on the way. Why are you being so stubborn? Would you please acknowledge this and step into this settlement that I will offer you? And that settlement is, if you would repent from your sin, stop walking in that sin. And if you would then turn to obedience to me, become a servant of mine, follow me, I will pay your debt with my own blood, my own life. Settle with me now. We are the stubborn ones who are refusing this incredible, gracious offer. He is the only one capable Once you're thrown in that prison, which is hell, there is nobody who can get you out. The offer had already been extended and you rejected it. And that's why this picture is so incredibly powerful. Jesus is there saying, pleading with us to step into obedience, to settle with him as our opponent before it's too late, before we get to the judge and we're dragged away and thrown into prison. If we're willing to accept his offer and repent and follow, he will forgive that debt. By the blood of Jesus and by his body, we can be saved. That is the only way. Every single one of us are in this boat where we need that. We need to settle our debt of sin now before it's too late. For those of us who are here today and we're sitting in these seats and we have settled that debt. We're standing before Christ. We've recognized that we have need of his salvation that he's offered. We've said, yeah, I will take that from you, Jesus. I am going to repent from my sin. I'm going to live in obedience to you. I'm going to give my life daily, take up my cross and follow you. I'm going to do that, Lord. For those of us who are in that camp, we need to live like it. Not just talk about it, not just have lip service, but have life service actually live for him. Your everyday actions need to show that you are a servant of Christ. And part of those everyday actions, again, going back to the overarching idea and heart of what Luke 12 is emphasizing about this eternal perspective, is that if these things about Jesus are true, then why are you not sharing it with others who don't know Jesus? You need to share the gospel with your neighbors, with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers. It's urgent that you do that. Why the delay? It can't keep going on. You got to act now. That's what Jesus is getting at. 
the way that we view life should not just be focused on ourselves and our own comfort. That is a temporary, wasteful view of life. It needs to be something different. We should be focused on Jesus. Jesus is the focus of an eternal perspective. In every single capacity, it always comes back to him. And that can seem so cliche, I know. It's always Jesus. If you've been in church for a long time, it can seem like I've heard that a million times. But it is so true, and you need to let that saturate to your heart and actually impact you. You cannot walk out of here complacent and lazy. Faith means action. It's not just something that happens mentally. It may start there with an acceptance, but it moves to your feet in activity. That's what Jesus is challenging us to. With all of this in mind and coming on the heels of this last section, so we talked about those verses about Jesus and settling with our accuser and that picture of the gospel that it is, I really think there's no better time to take communion together with that in mind. It's so clear what this sacrifice of Christ is. And as we take communion, looking at what Jesus did on, with dying on the cross and giving us this offer of salvation, it's a perfect time to, to do this together. So that's what we're about to do. Um, but I want to make something really clear. This is for those who believe and follow Jesus. When we take communion, this is specifically for those who have repented and begun to follow. Maybe we haven't been following Jesus very well and we're convicted of that. This is an opportunity to get right with him and get back on the path. But this is who this is for when we talk about doing communion together. And the reason this is important is because this is acknowledging what Jesus did in offering us salvation from our debt that we owe and by paying for our sin on the cross. That's what we're doing. And the reason that's important is because for anyone who doesn't believe but would take communion, what they would be doing is acknowledging Jesus's death and the offer that he's extended, but living a life in rejection to it. And for that person, communion then becomes very clear judgment. So it's very important if you are not following Christ, take this opportunity as those who are following Christ are taking communion to think through that. Think through what it means to follow Jesus. Really consider whether or not you are ready to count the cost yourself in following Jesus. And at the end of service today, we're going to have some of the pastors up here. I would love for you, if that, if that is you, to come talk with me or one of the other pastors about what it looks like to take those first steps of obedience. But right now, for those of us who know Jesus and are going to follow him, we're going to go ahead and, and do communion together. I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. And this is just uh, an area of scripture that's talking about communion. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
For those who follow Jesus, the Lord's death is a thing of hope and life. But for those who reject Jesus, it's a thing of judgment. So I want that to be clear as we get ready to do this. If you would take the cracker first, grab that cracker. I'm going to pray over this. Lord, I just thank you so much for what this little piece of bread represents. Lord, it represents your body that was broken and beaten and suffered greatly as you were tormented and mocked. Lord, as your body was broken, you set the example of sacrificial love. You set the example of being willing to suffer greatly and unprovoked, Lord. You didn't deserve that. You did it when, when you didn't have to. Lord, as we look at your body that was broken, Lord, help us to be challenged by that sacrificial nature of your acts. Lord, as we break this bread and eat it, Lord, help us to remember the cost of salvation and what it means that we have life in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. If you would break that bread and eat it. Next, we're going to take the juice. If you want to open that up. This represents Jesus' blood that was shed as payment for our sin. Let's pray over this. Lord, thank you so much for your blood that was shed. Thank you so much, Lord, for being willing to sacrifice your life so that we could have life. Lord, blood is a symbol of life. And Lord, you were willing to shed your own in a horrible, humiliating, painful way. Lord, so that our debt could be paid. Lord, we have no way that we could ever come close to repaying this debt on our own. It's only through you and the offer of, that you have given to settle our debt of sin that we have any chance to be saved. And Lord, as we look at your body that was broken and your blood that was shed, Lord, we are just so humbled that if we come to you and ask for that salvation and we opt into this covenant, this promise that if we repent and follow you, you will one day offer us hope and full freedom. Lord, it's, it's given now. We can believe and trust in that, but it's not our works that are accomplishing it. It's your blood that accomplishes it. So Lord, we thank you so much for your blood that was shed. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. If you would drink that cup. Lord, we're, we're so thankful for this reminder that we've had today and all these last several weeks throughout Luke 12. Lord, I just pray that the things that we've studied, this idea of understanding that you, Lord, are the focus of an eternal perspective. Lord, that as we come to grips with that, Lord, that we would actually live differently in light of that, that we'd be generous people, we'd be loving people, we would be obedient people, we would be intentional people. Lord, we would be a holy people who is turned from sin and is walking in desire to be sanctified. Lord, help us to be that in light of this. Lord, don't allow us to walk in a temporary mindset. Lord, help us not to waste this life, both for ourselves and others' sake. Lord, help us to love you well. Lord, I thank you so much for your body and blood. Lord, it's only you. Lord, everything comes back to you. Lord, we give everything we have for you. Lord, I pray that that would ring true in every single person's heart here today.
Thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord. Thank you for the hope that we have, that we don't have to be hopeless just waiting a eternal hell and separation, but that we have hope and life and a future with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.